Hello everyone and welcome to Shot River Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name is Edwin Davis and joining me this week, through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how's it going? Hey man, it's been a while. Um, I feel like mm. I've, it's been like a, over a month since I've been uh, on the show and I've missed you both and, you know, missed doing this. Um, but, you know, life has been happening. Uh, that makes it sound really grave, nothing, nothing bad's happened. <laughs> I've just not been able to get get it together in time every every Sunday, so that's why I've been off. But yeah, I'm back now and ready to talk about the important things. Yes, such as, you know, to go straight into our news, the news, I guess, conference, keynote, I guess, whatever, direct, whatever the term people want to use for those things now that everyone watches and no one seems to like in which corporations talk about the ways in which they're going to change your life often in ways that are going to impoverish you uh, <laughs> which this time came from apple who talked a lot about apple tv plus their new streaming service that they are launching this year and which they didn't really reveal a huge amount of new stuff about really they just talked about shows that had already been announced and some of they brought on some of the people who were involved. I think probably the the most noteworthy thing about that was the outrage that burst on the scene when people saw that Steven Spielberg was there talking about the shows that he's produced for them, and they're saying like, "How could you have been denigrating Netflix while also taking money from Apple? This was all very sinister." And uh, other people being like, "Well, no, he was just specifically talking about Netflix's movies. Like, <laughs> he's produced hundreds of television shows over the course of his career, including in fact, one very good one for Netflix." <laughs> yes, the Haunting of Hill House was a was an Amblin joint. Oh no, so the uh, like, I was thinking oh. about more um, the uh, Five came back. Oh yeah, yeah, mm. he's done that. So he's done it. He's de- definitely done like a few things for Netflix. So it's not like Spielberg was this kind of like Apple shill <laughs> who was trying to kick the the knees out from netflix it was literally just him being like uh you know if they're making movies and they want to be nominated for oscars maybe they should put them in theaters for a couple of weeks thanks bye <laughs> you know so like it, that was very that was a very kind of weird ripple for a moment there of everyone being like oh we've got you now steven and then everyone else being like mm, not really <laughs> but y- yes i guess it kind of you could read this as bad or you could read it as him just being like, yeah, I have a finger, I have fingers in a lot of pies and sometimes uh, those pies come into conflict. This metaphor's run away from me. Mm. But uh, yeah, so they they talked about some of their shows. They also talked about the fact they're releasing a credit card, which people seemed especially unenthused about and a, a game streaming service which seemed to be tacked on there so that they didn't completely get outrun by Google, Google, who previously announced Google Stadia, which is their big streaming service that they want to launch this year, I think. And yeah, it was just weirdly deflating event in that it seemed just kind of very boring. It didn't tell anything new to anyone. Uh, particularly people seemed really put out that they didn't even include like trailers for their shows Mm. which seems like the thing you would show if you were launching a essentially a tv network but also you know seems to be the latest stage and kind of the ramping up of this competition you know the, the streaming wars between all of these different mega corporations who are all jumping in to try and 
take some of Netflix's and, and Amazon and Hulu's ground with their own uh, original content. And the sheer number of them at this point seeming to suggest that there's not really going to be enough room for all of these things or we're just going to we're just kind of slowly kind of tumbling towards cable bundles but it being streaming this time mm. the the most expensive cable package you could ever imagine where you're paying a premium for every single channel mm-hmm. um which is you know i guess a thing well done everyone um it's like when those silicon valley people kind of come up with this new transportation system and they've they've essentially just invented the bus uh, we yeah. have we have reinvented cable television and made it more expensive and less mm. accessible. I think it's weird yeah. that they Apple announced a credit card, but then you know they do Apple Pay and stuff, which is you know paying for things on your phone without the need for a credit card, yeah. which seems a bit silly. But in terms of their streaming thing, there was a lot of show ponies tried out, um, and there was uh, scant details about anything that anyone was doing. Um, and the people ranged from, you know, Spielberg, J.J. Abrams, Oprah Winfrey, Reese Witherspoon. So like, like Rob McElhenney was there from It's Always mm. Sunny in Philadelphia. I know he's doing a new show. I presume that's the new show or whether they're just like, hey, let's have a range of people. Some of them, I don't know how dry the ink was on their contracts before they were wheeled out there. But it seems like, you know, for something that's only been mooted for a year or so, they have a lot of things in production. Mm, yeah, I also saw that they had uh, Kamel Nanjiani and Emily V. Gordon were there, who, you know, obviously had written The Big Sick together and have, I think, a lot of other projects in the pipeline. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it definitely seemed to run the gamut between some of the biggest names in entertainment and then other people who are maybe somewhat more new to the kind of big name content creation game i guess mm. the reese with the spoon project i think is the only one that's got any real details i think we previewed it in the tv episode mm, at the start of the yeah. year i think but all we know is it's it's set in a newsroom and it's steve carell reese with a spoon jennifer aniston i think think that's yeah. it yeah basically we just know that those three are involved they're all very charming and likable people and seems like it could be a good show that 12 people will watch on <laughs> apple apple tv plus because yeah it's kind of it, it seems very very hard for even something as big as as apple who obviously are a huge mega successful corporation to launch a streaming service like that because you really do need like netflix had the advantage that they kind of slowly moved into it because they'd been a rental service for ages and then the streaming thing like really started to pick up once broadband became more widely available and people could actually make it technologically possible to stream a whole movie or tv show or whatever and then they already had the customer base by the time they started introducing uh tv shows and like apple obviously have apple music which i think is is very much like the junior partner to Spotify or whatever. You know, it's it's like Spotify feels like the thing that everyone uses in Apple Music, less so. But it doesn't really feel like there's... Apart from the fact that, you know, Apple have their acolytes who will try everything they do and, and they are seen as the cutting edge, it kind of feels like it's going to be harder to make people make the jump from I use my Apple phone for everything to I'm going to pay extra to watch shows they make that might be good as opposed to like if they had 
a library of shows that people like already, which obviously was the big advantage that both Hulu and Netflix had, is that they just had big libraries of shows that people already liked and wanted to see before they even started airing their original stuff. Hmm. Yeah. When's when's it going to launch? Did they say? Or were they vague about Later that as this well? Year. Mm, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. I think it's very much not entirely clear, but I think it is meant to launch sometime this year. Hmm. Yeah, it's a crowded, yeah. it's a crowded marketplace. Mm, yeah, and and it's also one that I think is it. All this also goes for the Google Stadia thing as well. Like these are very very ambitious ideas of essentially wanting to change the way, less so you know change the way that people watch television because people already watch a lot of people already watch television via streaming anyway. But uh, in terms of like Apple gaming and Google Stadia, it's like we want to fundamentally change the way that people interact with video games you know like they're not gonna have to buy something anymore or or actually have the thing downloaded you can just stream it at a high frame rate and all this sort of stuff but that's very much dependent on people having access to really good high quality high speed broadband which is present for like a lot of the places a lot of places in the states particularly like the the coastal states but like there's huge swathes of the country where that's not really possible, and it seems like, um, and this is this is also true in terms of like when people talk about Netflix being more accessible than like movie theaters or whatever, like it's only accessible if you have the technology for it to be accessible to you. Mm. So it it kind of feels like a big bold idea, who which is showing up like ten to fifteen years too early unless you know in the next five years there's a massive attempt to do kind of like rural broadband and and things like that which is not outside of the realms of possibility that's one of those things that in the states is often talked about but it's the sort of thing that would also be just like a huge leap forward in terms of the way in which america specifically deals with the the internet Mm. What else happened this week? We had a cancellation or end, I guess, of a venerable television program, a television show that I, for one, have never watched a single episode of. And I like I maybe know two people in the world who have ever even seen one episode of it, which was Supernatural, the WB, I believe, TV show that's been on the air for, at this point, 14 years and after this final season that's airing later this year will have been on the air for 15 years and uh, it's coming to an end and it's just one of those things that just was, was a strange thing to read because at this point I just got so used to seeing news stories every couple of years saying like Supernatural renewed for another two years that I was just like oh, I guess people watch that and mm. they will continue to keep watching it and I will continue to not really have a clue what it is. Yeah I, I mean I'm, I'm aware it's a TV show Mm-hmm. Um, I'm guessing from the title, it's supernatural. Mm. Um, Actually, it's it's brutal realism. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's irony. Yeah, but I've never met a single sausage who's uh, who's, who's watched that show, and I'm friends with people who watch some right shit. Um, <laughs> so that's kind of surprising. I I don't think I've ever even seen it airing. Is it air on like Sci-Fi or something in the UK? I'd imagine. Um, but when I saw it was cancelled, I was like, oh, I'm. I mean, okay, sure. Um, didn't 
kind of know too much about it. But then kind of just started probing a little bit and kind of reading a little bit about it. And they were in the same way that monkey tennis has become shorthand in <laughs> British uh, television, like commissioning for an idea that's too stupid, supernatural, become kind of shorthand amongst TV executives or something that just keeps going. Mm. Not many shows get to double figures. Uh, so to get to 15 seasons is kind of hugely impressive, something that is not the most ubiquitous thing in the world um but it has clearly a small but dedicated fan base and i was mm-hmm. kind of reading about the cancellation and the the actors who pay brothers in the show i don't know what they do something supernatural i'm i'm, I'm pretty sure so like they, they they kind of shoot the show and the show is entirely filmed around their schedule so they can go to conventions because they make more money from that than they do from their wages in the show yeah that sounds about right given the passion that exists online for it at mm. least you know like whenever episode would episodes would air i would always see like just like my feed would just be inundated with people re- retweeting people who are watching the show and uh, which is always a weird experience when you're seeing people commenting on a show that you don't watch because it's just loads of non sequiturs <laughs> of mm. people seeing like oh he's not getting up from that it's just mm. gonna like okay cool <laughs> um but yeah that's uh it's weirdly, I think, you know, maybe it's just the fact that they're both, that both shows started in the same year. It, it For me, I always associate it with something like It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia in the sense that it's, you know, just a show that has, you know, a, a fairly small committed fan base who are like hugely into it and, and love it. And it's just been on for, at this point, a comically long length of time. Um to the extent that, you know, like at this point, I believe that It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia is a record breaking show. It is literally the longest running live action sitcom in American history, mm. <laughs> which is not something that you would have expected when, you know, the first episode aired or, and when they were talking about how the 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 three main guys in it had filmed bits and pieces of it they they filmed their own pilot like in their apartment and you know just kept reshooting it and re-editing it until they had the best possible version of this like really scrappy pilot that they had put together Mm. and now they're all very very successful (laughs) the show's been on the air for an impossibly long period of time um i think the probably the main difference there is i feel like the critical backing for it's always sunny has been more consistent like particularly the last five or six years it feels like people really do talk about it as being like one of the best shows on television every time it airs whereas it really feels as if most people seem to forget about supernatural around season six or seven maybe like that mm. was the last time i remember people really talking about it as uh as, as a show that warranted like a lot of discussion on something like the av club mm. uh, i mean rob mcelhenny as i mentioned was at the apple plus launch i didn't see any of the supernatural lads uh mm. there i mean to be honest i don't know what they look like it could be anyone just i'm assuming caucasian males yeah so yeah they could be they were probably at a convention <laughs> they probably had to miss the apple plus launch they were busy. Maybe that's where Supernatural's going. It's been cancelled on... Mm. It's now going to be... Uh, it's going to take it to the big time. Season 16, baby. That, honestly, would be a, a reasonably smart investment on Apple's <laughs> part. Maybe maybe not necessarily Supernatural, but if there's a show that has like a decent-sized fan base that maybe is on the bubble or is being neglected by whatever network currently airs it, if they just bought it, the back catalogue and 
said they were going to produce new episodes, you could probably get a decent number of people just to sign up to watch it on that. And at least that would give you a, a, a footing, a, a grounding from which to do more original stuff. Because mm. launching with just originals feels like a somewhat dicey proposition in the streaming world. Mm. It's like a network that just shows pilots. Yes. Um, that's yeah. uh, kind of tough. They should just, you know, renew Firefly. Fucking cowards. Just do it. <laughs> I don't mean, I don't want to be telling Apple how to make money. Um mm. It's just I'm a man in my cellar talking into the internet. Um, I'm sure they don't need me. They have people for that. But yeah, just, you know, bring back Crystal Maze or something. <laughs> or Kickstart. I'd like to see Kick. Do you know what Kickstart is, Ed? Are you, are you old enough for Kickstart? I don't think so. Oh, it was a, I mean, it, this is genuine. It was a game show on, you know, BBC uh, in the 80s where kids would compete outside this had to be done outside, um, uh, in kind of dirt bike trials. Wow. And it was called Kickstart. It had a great theme tune, and it would be like, they'd have a race, but then also have to do an obstacle course, but on like scrambler bikes. Um, and the more I'm saying this, <laughs> the more the weirder it gets. But that was a genuine show uh, when I was a kid uh, growing up. And it was all, yeah, it was all just like filmed in, you know, some kind of, on the back of some nature reserve in like Rotherham or something, and then just be it had a great theme tune. That's what I remember. But then and they had to hop on logs along this little like assault course thing on dirt bikes. Why was that a show? Why was that a thing? I don't know. But yeah, Apple Plus, bring that back. It's the show we need. Nostalgia is uh, you know Stranger Things. People like the eighties. Yeah, what they should bring back in terms of. Uh... In terms of shows that I, whenever I describe to people, just seem too weird to have existed. I think it was called Terror Towers. I don't know if you remember Terror Towers. Terror which was, Towers. Yeah, that was an early 90s kids, like, you know, like obstacle course, puzzle game show, like a fun house sort of thing. But the whole thing about it was that it was set in a haunted house and like it was all horror and scare orientated but the thing that i always remember about it and which it just seems like it's just such a weird choice was that the team that won at the end no sorry the, the team that lost at the end got all the prizes and then the team that won were within the fiction of the show killed and turned into <laughs> ghosts <laughs> and the end credits of the show was always just like you know it was just like a photo of them and they'd been made up to look like ghosts and as a child that really terrified me because i was like why would kids go on this show <laughs> if the choices are you win some like i don't know game boys or whatever or death um, <laughs> but i really feel like society has reached the point now where i i feel like that show could really find its niche where your choices are cheap consumer electronics or an early death. Mm. And I think that today TV and the public's kind of growing clamour for more and more extreme reality has probably led to the fact that they could genuinely kill children in a game show and people mm. would watch it. It's it, it's it's the you know the natural finishing point to reality TV. Yeah. And uh, if nothing else, it would give more work to Dave Benson Phillips. So I, I feel like the the melancholy that would set in at this point in his career and of having to preside over the deaths of children, I think, mean, would add <laughs> a real a real BAFTA worthy sheen to the show. Yeah, we talk about you know a late kind of career surge. Mm-hmm. That would be his kind of Pulp Fiction 
in a mm. John, John Travolta sense. Yeah, it could be his uh, his Albert Brooks in Drive. <laughs> like, really be. makes you reconsider him. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't. I didn't even know he had this in him, but he just killed <laughs> six kids. Um, yeah, there you go. Anyway, Jesus Christ. I'm going to have yeah. to look it up now on YouTube. That's going to take some hammer later. Uh, so from fictional deaths to real deaths, um, there are a couple of um, uh, sad passings this week of... of Certainly people who um, whose work meant a great deal to me, and I'm sure is true for a lot of people, uh, first of which was uh, Scott Walker, not the, the shit former governor of Wisconsin, but the wonderfully strange and brilliant singer-songwriter who had uh, a really bizarre career, <laughs> starting mm. out as a, something of a teen heartthrob in the 60s and with the Walker brothers doing these real kind of beautiful soaring pop songs and then reinventing himself as this, you know, Jacques Brel covering Baroque singer. And then after some travails, reinventing himself as a, a, an avant-garde and in the best possible way, deeply unpleasant (laughs) musician, uh, someone whose work was very tough and difficult to listen to, but very rewarding, who most recently had, kind of moved into doing scores for movies he his final work was the score for the movie vox lux which came out last year and which i thought was um a a very kind of like a film that i like more and more the more i think about it but particularly had a real difficult and oppressive score that uh the people i saw the movie with did not enjoy (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, but which i found to be very very effective and yeah i was just like that one was a real kicking the teeth because he's such a he was such a brilliant and vital artist for basically pretty much his entire career apart from like the 70s most of the 70s where he kind of by his own admission floundered around a little bit and made albums that he didn't really believe in but like for most of his certainly the last 40 years of career he would like make an album once or twice a decade and it would be one of the most revolutionary and unparalleled and uncompromising works of avant-garde music um or or like avant-garde verging on commercial music out there and yeah it's just a real real shame that he's lost left because he was still uh he was still doing really great and interesting work Mm, there's a there's a really good well kind of a baffling um documentary about him it was part of i think the bbc's imagine uh, mm. series, the one with um, Alan Yentop, Alan Yentop. Yeah. where they were kind of, they border on sycophancy a lot, but like there's one about Scott Walker where kind of, and I, it seems to be, it was my kind of introduction to to Scott Walker and he kind of talked about his old kind of stuff with the Phil Spector years and, and kind of, you're like, oh, i kind of familiar with that. And then just kind of like a hard cut to him trying to get the perfect sound by punching really hard, like this, this, this kind of half a dead pig. <laughs> He's <laughs> just hanging. He wants to get this kind of like this kind of like meaty slap, and he's just jabbing this pig. And I'm like, wow, okay, <laughs> this yeah. guy's serious. But yeah, like uh, Scott, uh, one, two, three, four. I think those are the ones. Mm. Um, if anyone wants to start anywhere with Mr. Walker's work, that's probably the place to be. Obviously, and the thing is, the Walker brother stuff is good. It's disposable, yeah. but it's you know incredible pop music. But yeah, if you want to kind of. Uh, uh, dip your toes in the water of uh, something a bit more kind of out there than than those four records are. Did you do more than four? Was it just four? The, there was just four where it was just his name and a number. Yeah, um, but those four yeah. as a collection, they're kind of like you know, they're, they're quite complimentary and 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 kind of um, a good place to start. I would say. 
but yeah, great shame. Like it's always a shame to lose a visionary, um, someone who is right up to the end doing interesting things. And yeah, I'm sure that brings us to our next um, uh, piece of bad news. Yes, the news that broke just yesterday that Agnes Varda had passed away. Agnes Varda, one of the kind of shining lights of the French New Wave or French New Wave adjacent. I think there's some, there's lots of hair splitting about who who technically is a French New Wave filmmaker and who's part of the left bank or whatever. But like she she was she kind of came to prominence at the same time as all the French New Wave people uh, did with things like uh, Cleo from Five to Seven and. Uh, you know her documentary work things like uncle uh uncle yanko and the black panthers and who like like scott walker you know was someone who was kind of vital and worked for pretty much her you know for for decades you know from the late 50s until this this past year when she uh made her final movie uh which was uh kind of i think it was called uh agnes parvada or, or, or something like that which was like a an overview of her career and was very much posited as a final work from her of her kind of doing similar to what she did for her late husband uh uh Jacques Demi where she did uh uh Jacques de Nantes I think was the documentary she made about his life and his work you know this was very much her giving her her own work that treatment of looking back on her work and her life and the the, the connection between the two and uh, she was a filmmaker of tremendous interest you know she made documentaries and feature films about all kinds of subjects she seemed thoroughly interested in everyone that she worked with or met you could really see that in something like the gleaners and i her documentary from 2000 where she's following people around who survive by you know basically going through the rubbish and picking things out or her documentary from a couple of years ago, co-directed with JR, Faces Places, where she's going around France and just meeting ordinary people, taking their pictures, talking to them about their lives. And it's she was she was just like a real fascinating artist and person and just seemed thoroughly wonderful. And I think one of the nicest things of the last two years, particularly after Faces Places, was seeing a whole new generation of people discover her through that and through the uh the 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 memification of her to some extent from you know a cardboard cutout of her being carried around at, uh, academy luncheons and things like that and people discovering this really fascinating artist and discovering that you know not only is she like incredibly funny and empathetic and and interesting now but that she had this huge wealth of work stretching back to the late 50s that people could uh, discover as well mm, yeah what's been kind of amazing is these kind of like these really cool anecdotes that have been coming out about her since about these kind of these really interesting little moments that say a lot about an artist and a person like the one that i read yesterday was saying that someone kind of got up at the end of one of her films or something we went to leave during the credits and she was kind of saying, you know, I don't want anyone to disrespect the people coming down, um, uh, you know, even if it's just for a second because this is their time or something. It was a really lovely little... So she said it way better than I do because, <laughs> you know, she was a genius and I'm just in a cellar talking to the internet. <laughs> but yeah, um, and also not above shit housing. So the, the cardboard mm. cut out of the Academy luncheon, I respect that. Um, mm. Yeah, game respect game there. That was pretty cool. Mm, yeah, and I, I really enjoyed all the stories about her friendship with Harrison Ford, which <laughs> is one of those things where 
you know, that like when someone passes away and someone who's been around for so long and who, you know, she, I think she lived in LA for, for a very long period of time. She made a bunch of movies in, in California in the sixties and seventies. So uh, I think she, she must've met him there or just, you know, from being on the film festival circuit for a very long time that these people always coming into contact with each other. And, you know, there were lots of pictures of them hanging out together, which was really funny. And there was uh, someone I can't remember who it was now, but someone shared an interview they had done with Harrison Ford like years and years ago, and they were they were talking to him about you know, some project that he clearly wasn't interested in, um, <laughs> and like they got onto the subject of Agnes Varda, and they said like he went from like zero to sixty in a second as soon as anyone wanted to talk to him about Agnes Varda, which uh, you know speaks speaks volumes about her that uh, Harrison Ford, the world's most bored man <laughs> in <laughs> in ninety percent of situations, could suddenly be uh, jolted into life by the opportunity to talk about someone he clearly uh, liked and cared about a great deal. Mm. I think Harrison Ford might be the kind of young Harrison Ford might be like the secret glue that holds the the kind of film world together. Because mm. I, I saw an interview with him. Oh no, an interview about him very recently, and I think it was like, you know, Sergio Mendes, kind of the yeah. Brazilian musician. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was like the guy who Harrison Ford built his shed <laughs> or something <laughs> like back in the day. It was just mm-hmm. like there's this picture of them two hanging out, and then uh, there's an interview with someone else as well in a band. I, I'm gonna say it might have been like Fleetwood Mac or something, where they were like they went to see. American Graffiti at the cinema and they're like hey there's that guy we buy weed from oh it's Harrison Ford <laughs> he was just gluing California together in the in the kind of 70s uh, he'll build you a shed he'll sell you some weed he can do it all and look bored while he's doing it mm, he was he was like the the more positive Charles Manson just like mm. one of those guys that everyone sort of knew but um, instead of orchestrating multiple murders uh, you know he was in Morning Glory you know yeah uh, who's to say which is worse you know that's not for me that's that's for history to decide but yeah there was it, he does have if he wasn't like one of the most famous people ever like he would have been uh like a weird zelig figure <laughs> like if, if he had remained just like kind of a character actor who showed up in things like i really feel like he would be the subject of a documentary <laughs> like someone mm. would be just to discover this guy he's just he was just everywhere but mm. he just he happened he happened to become on solo in indiana jones yeah and i heard in um you know speaking of zelig i heard the actually replaced tom zelig in uh, indiana jones <laughs> you know that's a, that is fucking awful that joke i do apologize i don't even make any sense but yeah tom zelig that's a film that needs to be made mm. yeah it's, it's just about a man who's changes physically to fit into any environment in but his, his mustache remains <laughs> remains yeah so our main topic this week is jordan peele's us the social thriller to use the term that uh, he tends to use to describe his movies which uh, is taking the world by storm it's uh, it was the number one film in the u.s last week earning 71 million dollars which is i believe the record for an original horror movie um mm-hmm. in terms of opening weekends and uh, at the time we're recording is has held pretty well in its second weekend and is uh, on course to be uh, you know just got another massive success for for jordan peele and for for blumhouse and you and I have both seen it. I recommended it last week as our, as my recommendation. And uh, we both thought it would be a really interesting movie to talk about because whilst it's its premise, which is established in the trailer, you know, there's this, this family that are going on holiday to Santa Cruz uh, at night. 
they are attacked by a family of doppelgangers and you know that's basically all the trailer shows you is that there are these these doppelgangers in red jumpsuits who are menacing this family but uh, as as is the case with with peel's previous work get out there's lots of other things going on under the surface the movie can be read in a lot of really interesting ways and it it go it goes in directions that uh, maybe might not be expected certainly i wasn't expecting based on on the trailer so we're going to talk about that and i think i should say right now we're going to spoil some stuff mm. um, particularly uh certainly from my perspective you know really have to talk about the ending of the movie which was the, the thing that really brought a lot of the movie into focus uh for me so if you haven't seen us and you don't want it spoiled then you know pause now go watch the movie come back if you have seen us and you want to hear people talk about it or you haven't seen us but you uh, just uh, interested in hearing about it, then then press on. Uh, so yeah, so so Matt, um, like I said, I had watched the movie and really liked and recommended it last week. Um, so I'll start with you. What what did you think of Us? I had a, uh, a very visceral reaction to Get Out mm-hmm. um, when I saw it. Instantly, I was kind of uh, you know before the just as the credits started rolling, I kind of thought, shit, that was special, um, and I'd kind of forgot it. Forgot it. It's not even a word. I'd forgot. I'd forgotten that I'd just kind of sat down to pick a movie to watch that day. I just kind of yeah. as soon as I pressed play, all of a sudden I knew it had ended and I'd been somewhere and I didn't like where I'd been because <laughs> it <laughs> forced me to kind of uh, look at myself in a different way, which is the purpose of of uh, you know great art, I suppose. Um, I didn't have that reaction with us, but what I did have was this lingering haunting feeling that I kind of can't shake. And I've spent the kind of five or six days since seeing it kind of just unpacking some of the imagery and some of the moments and, you know, some of the the kind of the layers and the meaning around it, which I didn't do with Get Out. And I'm not to say that there's more going on in us um, than there was in Get Out, because there's a lot going on in Get Out. But what I would say is, well, firstly, let's stop uh, <laughs> comparing people's first films, <laughs> their uh, second films, because it's mm. you know it can be a little bit unfair. But I walked away from us with the distinct feeling uh, of unease, and I spent a good portion of the running time thinking that the film was really going to struggle to tie it all together, mm. and there was a bit maybe about. 15 minutes from the end where I was like, I'm not sure this can, there's too much to pull off here, Mm. but I would say that Mr. Peel just about gets over the line. I there's the ending is something that like, there's a lot of kind of exposition, expositionary stuff that they, you know, they could have not gone so clearly into not kind of left things a little more, oblique i guess Mm. but i don't know whether that would have really alienated everybody (laughs) i think it probably might have done you have to give some people a bone a little bit but there's there's something about in if in get out they would have like really explained well you know these people have been meeting forever in the auction kind of black people off and uh, they've been meeting since 1962 (laughs) they caught they're called this they're called this and they like they explained everything it would have taken something away from the film whereas us needed a little bit of something but i'm not sure i needed all of it yeah, so yeah, in the movie there is a long 
I mean, it, I guess it kind of feels long just because the movie barrels ahead. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the few moments where it real really sits you down with the two characters played by Lupita Nyong'o, Adelaide, the mother of the family they're attacked, and Red, her doppelganger, where Red has kidnapped her son, Adelaide's son, and has led them into this kind of warren of underground tunnels where the doppelgangers who are revealed to have been the result of some clandestine, vaguely occult America, uh, American government scheme to kind of create doppelgangers of people in as a form of social control, like the idea being that you're going to, if you create a clone of someone, you kind of like can control them because it kind of splits their soul. It's all kind of like Castle Wolfenstein, Mm. Tuskegee experiment kind of stuff where there's kind of like, it's the sort of thing where you think, okay, there's this, this is all kind of basically talking about a a commingling of science and magic uh, in a way that obviously, you know, uh, wouldn't work. But, you know, when, when you consider what, shadowy governments have done over the years in terms of pursuit trying to see if you know the supernatural and the paranormal the paranormal exist you know is not that far outside the realm of possibility that, that they would try something like that uh yeah, yeah so she chases them down to this this the, the tunnels where these doppelgangers have have lived and uh, until this day where they've risen out and started you know killing people and they go into a classroom and then red you know it goes through basically explains all of that to adelaide and it's a. Uh, it, it does feel like something of an info dump, but not mm-hmm. not too bad of one because you've got Lupita Nyong'o like doing just a real great performance with this incredibly uh, unsettling and raspy voice, uh, explaining it all and and delivering it also almost like it's a fable, you know. Mm-hmm. So she she she's not um to to kind of call back to the episode last week. It's not like the architect explaining everything to Neo <laughs> in kind of uh, elaborate. Uh, impossible to pass uh, dialogue, you know, like, okay, this this all kind of makes sense. but And it still raises questions, because, like, I know lots of people have nitpicked it, being like, where do they get all their clothes from? You know, like, uh, all, the, oh, all this sort of stuff. Fuck off, internet. Just just <laughs> take the day off. Jesus Christ. But, but yeah, like, it, it feels like they got the balance just about right in terms of stopping the movie for, you know, a couple of minutes to just explain all of this stuff. Mm, it walks um, a fine line that yeah. that that end sequence, but it also manages to be so thrilling that it really doesn't matter too much. Like the 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 fight that proceed that uh, follows it, sorry, mm-hmm. to the kind of that kind of dark and gloomy orchestral version of uh, I got five on it uh, yes. is pretty remarkable. And I'd just like to say at this point, I went into the film without having seen a single trailer. All, oh, I'd, wow. all I'd seen is the poster and people on Twitter reacting to the trailer. I didn't know. Mm. I knew there was something about doppelgangers. That is it. I didn't know anything else. And so I went in completely, completely blind, I guess. And um, yeah, it was a pretty liberating experience. I would uh, definitely recommend doing that if you can in today's information heavy world. Yes, I think that's that's. I mean, that there's no point in saying that now because we've just told, told <laughs> everyone. <laughs> we told everyone it ends. There you go. Go in avoiding uh, the spoilers. Yeah. But yeah, no, I think I think that was probably the best way to go it because even though the trailer is largely very good at not revealing stuff, like you don't see like the Tim Heidecker and Elizabeth Moss 
uh, doppelganger, or you do, but you don't realize they're doppelgangers mm-hmm. um, in the trailers. Like when they showed up, and suddenly you realize, oh, the scope of this thing is a lot bigger <laughs> than uh, than I thought it was. Um, that was very very cool. And I think the movie did a really good job. The trailer did a very good job of not tipping its hand to that. But there is one shot in the trailer that because it didn't happen earlier in the movie kind of gives too much of a hint to the very very final twist which is when the the child adelaide strangles child red in the hall of mirrors Mm -hmm. because in you know at the start of the movie when they meet each other it cuts out on just the horrified look of red's face and then um then you know her the fake Adelaide being taken home by Adelaide's parents. So like when that didn't happen in the beginning, I was waiting, when is the shot going to come in where she one strangles the other? And then you realize, Oh, you know, it shows up right at the very end. And it it kind of feels like it's tipping the hand that the, the Lupita Nyong'o character that you've been following for the entire movie is actually one of the tethered having escaped. Uh, and it kind of feels like if they didn't include that shot in the trailer then people who had seen the trailer wouldn't just be anticipating when that shot is going to show up and possibly spoiling the movie for themselves um but that's that's like that was like my one thing because otherwise i think that trailer which i saw a lot playing before movies uh in the months leading up to the release of us was like really effective and like i I said to you and uh emily Every time I watched it, there was always instantly simultaneous reactions from people in the theatre where there would always be at least one person being like, oh, God, no. And <laughs> one person being like, hell yeah. <laughs> and that's, that, to me, is like the platonic ideal of what you want from a horror movie trailer of like some of the audience just being like, I'm never seeing that. And some of them being like, I cannot wait to see that. Mm, yeah. But I think the thing that is abundantly clear from In the Aftermath of Us is that Jordan Peele is an extraordinarily talented artist, mm. um, and you know we are probably at the the kind of the start of something quite special. Something it's kind of hard to think about when the last time we had someone with a with quite the one two to open their career mm. in yes. terms of impact, in terms of influence, in terms of like capturing something about the time. I mean, the obvious thing to say is something like you know the the one two of uh, of of Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, uh, mm. kind of the early nineties, and and I'm not comparing those the two filmmakers at all. I'm just saying that like when Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs were out, that's that seemed to influence a lot of things, and that seemed yeah. to be how people talked about things through the prism of through the prism of the Tarantino uh, kind of post-Sundance boom. And I feel like we're moving through a kind of like a Jordan Peele kind of seizing the means of production type movement where, you know, people are making socially conscious genre films. And I would just like to say as well, this this whole bullshit about elevated horror. Ugh. Mm. So I think someone said on Twitter and they kind of uh, summed it up quite nicely. They said that uh, film Twitter is having its... Uh, comic book slash graphic novel moment um where <laughs> you know it's you know it's just a horror movie it's, you know just being a snob about it aren't you mm, yeah and i saw a tweet today where someone was talking about you know elevated horror they were the same like you know if uh Haxon and vampire have criterion collection uh editions then i think it's fair to say that horror has always been <laughs> like a 
foundational part of all cinema like there's no point in in acting now like oh just because a24 are putting out a bunch of horror movies that it's suddenly like classy Mm. um you know like there's there's a very rich tradition going back to 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 things like you know the, the the universal monster movies of the of the 30s which were kind of very high end glossy horror movies that were clearly intended for like a, a sophisticated audience like it's not this is not a new thing mm. that you can get horror movies that have like a lot of care and attention and intelligence put into them that that's been uh, the case for it for forever in the same way that you know that there's plenty of uh just like dreadful middle brow movies that get released every year you know like that doesn't define the genre any more than like all the shitty horror movies that get made just because people have decided that some of them are good doesn't mean that you can say that they somehow transcend their genre. They're still part of it. Mm, yeah, we're just kind of living through a time where quite a few good horror movies have come out and it stands to reason that if a good horror movie comes out that has something to say, then someone might want to make another one that has something to say. And, mm. you know, when they think, oh, these could become popular and this bubble will burst and then, you know, maybe in you know five or so years we'll get another little spate of horror films that say something different you know it's just that's the way it happens like you know get over yourselves please yeah it's what you get when you have a a genre where even the most expensive movies the horror movies are cheap you know (laughs) yeah like like us cost about 20 million dollars which is you know peanuts in a world where most movies that get put out by big studios are in the 150 to 200 million dollar range but uh they are cheap to make and quick to make as well so you know that's why it's such a exciting and reactive genre like if something comes out that really catches people's attention whether it's found footage or torture porn or something like that then the there's opportunities for people to really jump on that bandwagon and crank out as many of those movies as possible until people get bored Mm. and you know so there's a it's, it's a genre that is very good at kind of like latching on to something that connects with audiences, giving them as much as they can stand, burning through it, and then, you know, finding something else that people like in a very short period of time. Like, if superhero movies operated on the same model, like, you know, that that whole genre would have burnt out by, like, 2006. <laughs> mm. uh, instead, it kind of keeps going on and on. Yeah, yeah. Can we just uh, stop and say that the film is only really works because of Lupita Nyong'o's performance um, mm-hmm. and what was pointed out to me, to my amazement, uh, in her first lead role. Yes, that is really quite nuts, considering that... She won an Oscar been, like like yeah. eight years ago or whatever. Yeah, she's, a, she's an Oscar winner. She's been working pretty steadily for the better part of a decade, but you know in the in recent years mainly in voiceover or mm. you know like in the the Star Wars movies playing Maz Kanata in uh, the Jungle Book and her like live action work i think she's only done like two or three live action movies since 12 years a slave like she was in um Queen of Catway Queen, Queen of Catway, which was a, a supporting role, yeah. um, but you know an important one, and she's very has good. She, has it? she done a non-Disney movie since since Twelve Years a Slave? Uh, yes, she was in the in Nonstop, the Liam Neeson 
airplane taken <laughs> um, which came out uh, i think came out like the january that she won her oscar like 2014 it was like that weird um weird thing like with when jessica chastain was nominated for best actress for zero dark 30 the same time that uh mama was coming out like mm-hmm. she kind of happened to have a big commercial hit at the same time that she was nominated for a big prestigious award but yeah i think mainly she's been doing uh, Disney movies and voiceover. And, and like you say, this is, is incredible that this is the first lead role that she's had in that time and a lead, lead, leads role um, because obviously she gives two radically different performances and uh, she's just incredible at both. You know, she really does. It's that, that great thing when you see someone playing multiple roles where you forget that it's too... Uh, that it's you forget that it's a single person playing both roles because mm. they're just so in- incredible and they do such a great job of investing both characters with a reality that you you know, like I certainly do like just kind of forget and that's also true of like uh, Winston Duke as as Gabe and Abraham her her husband who is feels very very different in both both of those roles. Mm. I I commend his commitment to dad jokes. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, in the in the kind of straight role and 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 also his kind of placement in the film as the character you see in a lot of horror movies who doesn't quite is that even though they're seeing things that are beyond comprehension, they're still not quite on board with what's happening. Yes. Yeah, yeah. and he's also one of my favorite moments in the movie was when I realized just how good Jordan Peele is when they make little bit too much of a deal about mentioning a flare gun earlier mm. in earlier in the movie and yeah. i'm like oh okay right that's gonna come up and then there's you know the bit where abraham chases gabe onto the boat and then i was like oh i wonder how it's not uh, abraham it's uh tex the the tim heidecker oh is it yes of course it is yeah, yeah cause, so cause abraham's already been chewed up by the boat by the other boat <laughs> yeah point, so yeah. he gets heidecker on the boat and i'm like oh, okay this is gonna go down lo and behold flare gun in his hand but it, it doesn't have quite the end of uh, dead calm about it uh, it's actually <laughs> makes quite a funny gag uh, with the flare gun and i was like ah you led me down the garden path you tinker can't believe you did that to me and yeah he pulls it off nicely like that yeah i i really enjoy heidecker's two performances because he's so good at playing the you know tim heidecker part <laughs> the um the the guy from the comedy <laughs> kind of like douchebag role that he's really really good at and really can do really funny and then once the you know his family are uh killed and they're replaced by their doppelgangers like the way he's you know just guttural and kind of toying with a uh, with gabe as he's following him to the boat mm-hmm. is really uh really unnerving but also really really funny <laughs> like it's it's clear that everyone who got to play two roles in it really relished the chance to be the monsters uh mm. you, you also see that a lot with uh elizabeth moss who uh is really going kind of like full second half of queen of earth with her um, with her performance yeah yeah there's some really amazing kind of like silent scream movements with her when she's got the Peter Nyong'o tied up to the end of the bed and she's kind mm. of in this kind of really unusual way kind of reenacting the story she tells earlier about getting facial surgery like yes. kind of like cutting open her face yeah it's uh 
Yeah, like I say, it's unsettling. It's some unsettling shit. Yeah, and I, I really like because like one of the things that's established is that the the tethered the people who live in the underground who are like the the clones of the of the people on the surface act out the things that their surface dwelling counterparts are doing and i really liked the bit towards the end where they restage adelaide getting lost and you see her like uh, and you see her counterpart wandering through the tunnels and you see all of these doppelgangers kind of doing these really grotesque exaggerated versions of what people were doing on the surface mm-hmm. like like her dad handing her the sweater and the, 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 the t-shirt and things like that and then you see the guy who on the surface has the 1111 board and then when you see him under the surface he's scarred his own head and scraped 1111 into his forehead like i thought that uh, the, the the way in which those shots mirrored each other and the way in which they just kind of like restaged these moments but slightly off was really really funny i don't and also just like the way in which they recreate because they're at a fairground the way they recreate the fair the fairground rise of just having people standing in front of each other and leaning from side to side to replicate the uh the being on a roller coaster or people in a room just running in a circle to replicate the whirlits and stuff Mm -hmm. like that i thought that stuff was like super effective and inventive as a way of again suggesting the scope of the movie without actually you know costing the world because it's, mm. it's a movie that's looks gorgeous and has a sense of scale to it whilst when you think about why it happens it's like oh it really only takes place within a very limited number of locations and scenes which is you know like just smart filmmaking really mm. yeah yeah there's kind of that whole thing of you know, invention coming out of uh, the practicality of making a film on a smaller budget. Mm. But I, I'd kind of just like to say that the film features some kind of amazing cinematography and some kind of incredible visual images that are the ones that when you've seen the film once, you'll revisit and and kind of unpack again and again. The one that keeps springing to my mind is, is quite an early bit when they arrive at the beach and there's kind mm. of like a shot that is kind of like an overhead shot of the family walking along the beach to just kind of hang out, you know, in a nice kind of summery locale. But the shadows are super stark yeah. and long and, you know, you've got these kind of like, oh, all of a sudden there's a, a family with a with another family walking behind them and the other family is kind of, you know, slightly distorted and sinister um mm. and yeah i just thought that you know that's an incredible no frills in camera piece of storytelling and the film is chock full of ones you notice straight away like that but then also others that you know your brain notices but um you don't quite trigger onto until you know you've got home and are sitting up um thinking about it mm. did you find the movie sc- scary because i think that was like one of the things that i think um get out was knocked for was people saying that it's not not really that scary or whatever and i i kind of found myself watching us having that idea you know the the the, the phrase social thriller popping through my head and like i found it to be i found it to be very tense Mm -hmm. and uh you know i was on edge throughout the entirety of it but i kind of feel like it wasn't that you know it wasn't conventionally scary in in a lot of ways and like some of the things like the home invasion itself i think mainly because a lot of the the big moments in it had already 
been in the trailer so i think those were lessened for me but you know like a lot of that stuff didn't really didn't really scare me that much but at the same time i kind of feel like a lot of it maybe wasn't necessarily to be kind of like terrifying because at the same time that you're kind of on edge and wondering what the doppelgangers are going to do to the to the the characters uh you know like there's also just really funny jokes <laughs> mm. kind of being being thrown out and these kind of like really sharp moments and it, 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 so yeah so so did you were there any moments that really kind of leapt out to you as being particularly uh particularly scary um i wouldn't say that it was a particularly scary film but i was certainly scared throughout mm. um yeah. like you say you are coiled in the um uh, kind of expectation that something dreadful is about to happen any moment where someone i liked was uh, in some kind of danger the the moment in the cupboard between pluto and jason i think yeah. uh, where you realize that he is mirroring every moment movement that jason makes and when he pulls his mask up that is a fairly kind of horrifying reveal i guess but yeah, yeah. i mean you can talk about conventionally scary kind of all you like like you know the film it is conventionally scary there's fucking jump scares every five minutes i was not scared at all during that film (laughs) because that is cheap uh what is not cheap is uh you know using all the tools at a master filmmaker's disposable and making me feel like i am not having a nice time but i Mm -hmm. want to keep having a nice time that is the um the true measure of you know how you make a horror movie is how do you make something that is unpleasant, but you want to make people want to sit through it um, and, you know, uh, face something about the human condition by enjoying, if that's the right word, um, what you're looking at, which is just horrifying stuff. And, you know, the implications of what's gone on in in uh, in, in us are truly terrifying. But was I there gripping the uh, the kind of edge of my seat? I wasn't, I was not conventionally scared if, you know, but then this is the whole point about this kind of whole elevated horror business Fuck convention doesn't matter. It's like a film that made me feel uneasy. Like, mm. you know, he, he, Jordan Peele is clearly leaning into a lot of horror tropes, um, a lot of the time. Um, and yeah, he's doing something quite different with it and it's, you know, super interesting. Here we are talking about it. Um, and you know, it made me feel stuff that I haven't felt in the cinema for quite a long time, you know? Um, I mean, I'm not sure I want to feel those again (laughs) anytime soon, but you know, good God. Yeah. I I wasn't, I did watch it like two or three weeks ago. I missed it when it came out and I was, people liked it. That's really bad. Like that film's terrible. Like it's got jump scares in it, like every five seconds and they're CGI jump scares as well, which is like, you know, everyone knows they're the best kind, but like, it's just a cat jumping out from behind a box every five seconds. It's terrible. And you know, it doesn't do anything for me. I like horror films that, that make me, you know, really, really kind of have to turn the light on when I go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. Cause those are the best things. You know, I'm still scared of the ring. I'm still scared of audition. I'm, I'm still, Ooh, yeah. I think I'm just scared of Japanese women. <laughs> That's what it seems, <laughs> to, it seems to suggest. I'm scared by Ghostwatch. Those things, those, those mm. uh, works that, that put images in your brain that make you look over your shoulder, that even though you are a rational, logical person, understand can't possibly be true. It makes you think them because the fiction is being created is so deftly done and executed that 
even though you are a rational, logical person, you think twice. And that is what us does excellently. Like, I'm not scared that my doppelganger is going to pop out, but I'm afraid of the implication. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, that's it. That's that's what it does. Like, no, I, I mean, I, I'd, I'd trade any number of jump scares in for, for, for something like that. Mm. Yeah, I think the the sign of how how well Jordan Peele uses kind of like the conventions of horror to like like the the flair thing you know like he he's someone who really understands the basics of screenwriting of the setup payoff pe- set up payoff stuff you know you set up something in the first act you remind people about it in the second act and then it pays off in the third act you know that sort of really basic stuff and he can do that really well. Like I think he does it really well with Pluto and Jason, and establishing that uh, Jason had, uh, you know, he puts his toy truck in the door to kind of stop it closing on him. So later on, when he he knocks it out of the way to trap Pluto in there, that's that's very very good, not too obvious storytelling. And mm-hmm. what I think he does with the the moment in the movie that gave me kind of like the most conventional jump was when tim heidecker and elizabeth moss's family are killed Mm -hmm. because there's a long setup to it that lets you know that something very bad is going to happen (laughs) which is like it's late at night their power went off briefly but the backup kicked in and elizabeth moss is asking tim heidecker to see if there's anything outside and you know she thinks she's heard something he being just a dead you know a dickhead <laughs> he's like <laughs> kind of playing it up and being like hey yeah there is something and you're trying to, to like scare her and then obviously he's not seen anything and he's just messing with her the t- their two twin girls played by the t- the girl the twins who played emma in <laughs> friends uh as no. everyone yes really? oh wow yeah. Yeah, all grown up and murdering each other <laughs> they uh you know they come out and they say hey what's happening and then suddenly if I remember correctly, like Tim Heidecker reacts to something off screen and then the camera kind of like s- turns up and then you see that the two doppelgangers of the twins are there and they stab them both in the neck. Mm-hmm. And that is for me like the thing where what's really effective about that is that at that point it hasn't, the film hasn't established that there are more than the four doppelgangers. Mm-hmm. So at that point, like maybe we're thinking, oh, the you know, the family have escaped from their doppelgangers, maybe that, and that we know they're going to their friends for safety. Maybe the doppelgangers will get there first. And then suddenly, oh, that's, that's the implication is, oh, this is, this is much bigger. Everyone has a doppelganger and they're all rising up to kill them. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, uh, that, that for me was like the most uh, effective moment. So let's, I guess we can kind of like talk about the theme of the movie or the, the allegory of the movie, because I think that's one of the things that has been most uh, discussed. And that was the thing that for me, like you talked about how like you were like 15 minutes in the end, you didn't know if the movie was going to kind of stick the landing or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I, that was how, kind of how I felt, but more from like trying to pass what it's what you know what its message was in inverted commas and like it's the, the movie doesn't necessarily need to have you know a, a, a clear defined message that's kind of too prescriptive and boring but you know like there is clearly something in as you're watching it you're thinking okay like this is something about a class of people rising up against a different class of people like a class that have been oppressed and forgotten and 
you know, kind of taking revenge and then you're trying to pass who exactly that represents. And for me, it all kind of felt a little squishy, but then it all kind of came into focus with the revelation that the Lupita Nyong'o character that we'd been following was actually someone who had been a tethered and, you know, in 1986 had attacked her kind of above ground version and escaped from the underworld and you know had been living out the rest of her life and for me that was like oh what this is kind of about is about it's not just about whatever you want to say like privileged people or people who are in a position of power uh, ignoring and suppressing the plight of other people it's literally about someone who knows about this sort of stuff and willfully ignoring it in order to just advance themselves mm-hmm. and that that's kind of like the original sin it's not these people are kind of like blithely living their lives and not understanding that there are people in the world who are, are, are hurting as a result it's literally like someone escaped from this and did nothing to improve their lot and that for me was like the moment when the movie kind of clicked into place and why i really liked that twist i know that online it seems to have been very divisive there's a there's a very dist, uh, stark dividing line for people between people who like the twist and people who don't but like when i was watching it's like oh like the twist is the movie <laughs> like mm-hmm. that's for me that's the thing that really brings its metaphor whichever you know if you want to read it about class about race about you know kind of like psychology and trauma whichever one of those you you want to kind of is your read like for me that the twist is what really crystallizes that stuff and makes it interesting mm, no yeah you're you're 100 right and i i kind of thought uh there was a point at which i thought oh this is maybe too on the nose which was when um in the first meeting of the doppelganger and the family the doppelgangers and the family she says um we are americans and mm-hmm. I already then instantly, and we have discussed this ad nauseum on the show. I am somewhat of a dum dum who doesn't <laughs> like spot twists coming or anything, and um, generally doesn't kind of get it until <laughs> way after the fact. But I was like, oh, us, us, US. I get. Oh, okay. And then I just thought, <laughs> mm, oh, is that too? Is that too much? <laughs> is that too much? But then, yeah, you get the idea that that um, it's not quite as simple as that when you realise that she is the person that has been uh, that has done the old switcheroo mm-hmm. and i love that 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 image of her at the end where the the real version of adelaide is dancing in the underworld in a kind of incredible kind of coordinated fashion where we've seen that all the kind of tethered below surface are kind of ungainly and and you know kind of clumsy and move very awkwardly but yet we see her dancing as beautifully as she does on the surface and that was a really incredible moment and then yeah yeah like you say that twist is is something that elevates it rather than kind of cheapens it which is you know the way that a lot of twists do and just like a cheap trick mm. to pull 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 the wool over your eyes whereas you say like yeah like you say the twist is the movie yeah because like I, th- I think we've discussed this in the past like there are there's so it's so hard to do a good twist and there are there are so many like say that just cheapen a movie or that there's a twist just thrown in to be like ah is a thing to kind of like throw you off or to troll you or whatever like i always think about the absolute worst example for me is like high tension that uh um uh french or belgian horror movie from like 2002 which is a really good grit uh, grim um 
slasher movie for most of its running time and then like like 20 minutes from the end it's like have you seen it i haven't no i've never even heard of Uh, it but you can spoil it for me it's fine okay um i think it's also called like switchblade romance oh i've I've, I've heard of switchblade romance yes but i've not seen the movie in question it's got a bunch of it's got a bunch of titles but yeah like um spoilers for this movie, if, if you don't want it spoiled, you can skip like 30 seconds ahead. But yeah, it's like suddenly revealed like, oh, the woman that was being, one of the two women being chased was the killer all along. And like the large man that was going around killing people was actually just this uh, split personality of this character. And it's just one of those things that doesn't really serve the movie in any way. It's just distracting and leaves you like asking questions and makes the the whole like emotional core of the end of the movie just really cheap and rubbish Mm. and like though that for me is always like the 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 example i can think of the twist that just completely screws over what was otherwise a really good movie and like this is like the exact opposite of that It's it's a moment that really crystallizes what up until then like i wouldn't say was a bad movie i was really enjoying the movie and i was like i really enjoyed the sense of not really knowing where it was going mm-hmm. um and the 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 excitement of thinking you know like like you said you know how is how is he going to kind of bring all of these disparate elements together but uh you know like the the, the twist at the end there isn't just kind of like a, a, a an extra thing piled on to because they ran out of ideas it literally is like okay this is the thing that's going to crystallize basically the entire uh metaphorical and allegorical underpinning of what the movie is and uh, that's really exciting to see a a twist that actually not only makes you kind of reconsider the movie but in some ways clarifies what the movie is about Mm, yeah i'm very much looking forward to revisiting this again Mm. because there's going to be a lot of things where 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 there is a twist in a movie sometimes when you re-watch it again you're like, well, hang on, that twist kind of completely uh, undermines the rest of this. You know, this scene doesn't make any sense because, you know, you, what you know now kind of contradicts everything that has gone before. And I think that Us is going to be a film where you watch it again, knowing the twist, and you're like, oh, shit, this is going to reveal more now rather than um, kind of undermine those moments that you uh, sat through the first time. Because that can be a dispiriting experience, which is what makes a lot of films that have twists not particularly rewatchable. Yes. Whereas, yeah. like something like the, you know, the usual suspects, which has a you know a very famous twist in it, and but that can be endlessly rewatched, um, knowing the twist because you kind of notice the moments of glee of you know watching a, a liar and you know a master kind of criminal genius, kind of playing with not only the person who's interrogating them, but you, <laughs> you are sat there being conned. Um, and it's uh, spectacular. Whereas, yeah, um, something like The Village. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Yeah, not so much. Yeah. Have I ever told the story on here about the the kind of like forum wars that grew up around The Village? Uh, no, but please do. This is, this is specifically like in the message boards for IMDb. There was like, for a long time before the movie came out, there was like a very vocal contingent of people arguing about whether or not oh, the twist is going to be twist uh, spoilers for the village skip <laughs> skip 30 seconds um whether or not the movie is going to be in the current day or not and right. were, like two sides who were really dug in there were like some people like it couldn't be that that's rubbish and like really it was really really vicious uh, as as much as uh, you know kind of 
pre-4chan internet <laughs> could be vicious. Um, but then uh, one day, like a week or two weeks before the movie came out, like credits were added in for like electrician or something were added to it. And then suddenly it was like, ah, and then suddenly one side was uh, <laughs> fucking furious. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Um, which, they, um, I mean, they should have been because it revealed the twist of the movie before the movie had come out mm. uh, in much the same way as like the soundtrack album for... Or that the original score release for Phantom Menace included a track called like Qui Gon's Funeral, yeah, Death of Qui Gon, or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, um, but yeah, like they, I think they were especially furious because there'd been this long protracted argument about how it couldn't possibly be that that was the twist, <laughs> and then this one bit of casting information just just like, oh yeah, that is that's what happens. Mm. Then that person was probably that was probably their first acting job, but they were so excited to get their first credit, <laughs> and all of a sudden they've ruined everyone's dreams. Yeah. So we end this episode. We end all our episodes of Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think that you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Matt, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Ah, uh, yeah, I'm going to recommend a little documentary that I found lurking in the depths of Netflix, um, kind of hiding behind the algorithm that's supposed to help me find things I want to see, but actually just hides it just behind you know, nine seasons of Pretty Little Liars. But, you know, thanks for that, Netflix. <laughs> um, it's a documentary called uh, Best Worst Thing That Ever Could Have Happened. Um, mm. a, uh, have, you, have you seen it? I've seen it um, several yeah. times, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is like some of the best documentaries, something you don't really know anything about, but it sounds uh, kind of intriguing enough. So you watch it, and it is uh, a documentary that tells the story of a uh, musical that ran on Broadway, done by uh, Stephen Sondheim, who uh, wrote that, and uh, Harold Prince, who was his kind of like uh, famed uh, directing partner. He did all his, his big hits with him, um, like Company, Sweeney Todd, you know, mm-hmm. all the big ones. It was about the musical they did, Merrily We Roll Along, which you probably haven't heard of, and there's a reason why you probably haven't. is because it only lasted, you know, like 15 performances or something before it got cancelled because yeah. it was fucking weird <laughs> and they could not make it work um, despite everyone's best efforts to make something that was just too weird to make work. Um, they tried to make a musical out of a, an old play that existed in which uh, the play opens with uh, a bunch of jaded kind of middle-aged people um, and, you know, they're talking about how much they hate their lives and their careers and then the next scene, they're a little younger and, you know, they're kind of on their way to becoming jaded and then the next scene, they're a little younger and then it goes all the way back until they're graduating high school with kind of this blind optimism about their futures but we've already seen how their lives turn out and, you know, that seems like a good concept for a film, <laughs> but for a play where you can't really change out the actors and they decided to have teenagers play the, the middle-aged people and have them, like, kind of... <laughs> unage and to a point where it would be so confusing that uh two days before the show was to open they scrapped all the costumes and just made all the characters wear a t-shirt with their characters like title on the on the chest and yeah it's just like a really interesting look at this kind of the even people at the top of their game like Sondheim and Prince who should state never worked together after that after you know this kind of slew of hits and critical acclaim and they could do no wrong they were at the very height of their powers and then they just turned out this just weird oddity that no one was into and there's a great bit in the documentary where the cast are you know talking about opening night and the cast includes people like jason alexander who was you know kind of uh probably in his early 20s at the time i'd imagine um and you know just talking about how you know first act people just 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 a mass exodus of people leaving 
I mean, kind of like even kind of fairly forgiving theatre audiences who watch things in previews and stuff. No, just just flocking out of the theatre going, this is this is weird. <laughs> like, it made me really want to see that original show. Not because it's been done since, and I think it's been done. It's been done on on uh, the West End, and it won kind of Olivier awards and stuff. So, like you know, it's but just that production with all of the right ingredients just stunk up the joint so bad mm. that it was cancelled before they recorded the official cast recording because they, they normally record it like two or three weeks into the run, but the show had been cancelled by the time they actually got to so The last time all these actors saw each other was at the uh, the cast recording of the uh, of the soundtrack um, after it had been cancelled. Anyway, I've given away most of it, but we're, you know, it's spoiler heavy, but it's a really good documentary. I'd recommend seeing it. It's uh, directed by one of the original cast who went on to become a actor who's in Dirty Dancing. I won't tell you who he plays, mm, yeah. but yeah, he's also uh, you know went on to become a famed theatre director, and kind of it's a it's quite interesting going back because he finds like his audition tapes and interviews with himself at the time, and you know a little bit of kind of self reflection on you know much like the play is supposed to be about someone who kind of starts their career kind of middle aged and jaded, but then kind of finds out that they were once a bright eyed hopeful back in the day. But yeah, it's just like kind of really interesting. Like, I just stumbled across it, kind of you know looking at other things and i was like oh i think i might have heard of this and i watched it and i was like jesus christ that's a weird story yeah it's uh yeah i'll second that recommendation heartily i think that's a real real great documentary and a fantastic story and yeah seeing all of those actors and tracing how their careers went is is a real kind of interesting thing to see because yeah you have you have people who you know tried acting and never really kind of worked out for them you have other people who became just kind of like lifers on the broadway stage jason alexander obviously like hugely successful actor who went on to do like many things and it's really interesting hearing them all talk about the the special place that this show had in their lives because you know for i think pretty much all of them it was their first real brush with that kind of that kind of pressure that kind of uh attention being paid to them and and also all these kind of like theatre-loving kids getting to work with Sondheim when they were, like, barely out of their teens. Like, you mm-hmm. really do see their kind of glee and enthusiasm, even, like, at this, you know, that, that, that later in their life, being able to talk about it, you can really get a sense of how much that really meant to them. Mm, yeah, totally. Uh, I'm going to recommend a comedy series that I've been watching on Hulu in the US. It is a Crave original, which I think is a Canadian channel. I'm not entirely sure. I know that it's hit Hulu, which is how I think most people have been watching it. It's a show called Letter Kenny, which is a Canadian sitcom set in a fictional Ontario kind of rural town where, which is mainly focuses on um, these kind of like these crew of hyperverbal, not especially smart people who just spend all of their time kind of joking with each other trying to come up with various schemes in the case of one of them the main character Wayne who is um one of the most square men I think who has ever existed (laughs) um just like real 
kind of uh, beefy boy. And like, I thought it was funny mm-hmm. just looking at his credits. Um, there's like a whole generation of young Canadian actors who, if you look at their credits and if they are stocky enough, they have probably been in Smallville <laughs> because mm-hmm. uh, for, for a whole generation of Canadian actors, it's like, yeah, we needed someone to be on a football team or to get hit with kryptonite and become kind of super powered at some point. And hit and, uh, the guy who stars in the show and created it was one of them. Um, yeah, like there's one episode which is just about him having sworn off fighting because he was in a relationship for several years decides he's going to reclaim his talent his his title as the toughest man in Letterkenny and so it's just him fighting guys for the whole episode and him having to reach some sort of uh, agreement with his sister about where the fights can happen and like kind of being like uh, okay you know you have to fight them with the bottom of the yard they can't come onto the property and then them listing all the people who they who he has to fight and they say yeah like oh you know there's this guy rat ass who's considered the toughest in the toughest in town why is he called rat ass he's got a hairy ass like a rat it's like okay (laughs) (laughs) and it's just like it's just a really it's just a really funny weird show and the thing about it that i really love is that the the dialogue in it is real kind of like mile a minute stuff they are saying long uh, long speeches at each other with almost no breaths and it looks like that i can only assume the scripts must be the size of phone books because they are just like these real long monologues being thrown at each other but they're all incredibly funny incredibly weird it's really funny hearing just like the weird insults they give to each other like one that i've heard a few times is just calling each other uh insulting someone by calling them a parachute which I, <laughs> I, just, I just love that as a as a as an insult um and there's one point where a uh a bar fight almost breaks out uh over someone insulting the character of tim riggins <laughs> in friday night lights <laughs> you um, leave riggins out of it yeah exactly and it's just there's just lots of like lots of like really weird little touches thrown in and i've i've really been enjoying it it's i think they've done like four series so far and they're all on hulu and i really really recommend it because it's a super weird show that i i think if you watch the the opening scene i believe is on youtube if you just search for it and uh it's just like the character of wayne squaring off with these two hockey players who show up on his farm and it's just really if if you laugh at that you'll probably enjoy the show so yeah uh, i'll put the link to that in the in the description for anyone who uh, wants to check that out and see if they uh, are on the wavelength of letterkenny which is a very strange show that i've been enjoying a great deal if you've enjoyed this episode of the show then please subscribe to us on itunes stitcher player fm all the usual places uh, our acast spotify leave us a review uh, rate us and recommend us to your friends it's the best way to help us grow our audience you can also find us on facebook and twitter where we are at srs underscore podcast we'll be back next week with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me ed's doppelganger <laughs> twist